Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the dose of salts that is Millie Johnson. Millie started writing books in her late 30s when the birth of her first son showed her the direction she'd been struggling to find. Now on her 20th novel, Together Again, self-described northern bird, Millie has sold over two and a half million books and won the Romantic Novelist Association Outstanding Achievement Award. But you'd never know it because Millie, along with hundreds of other highly successful women, writes books that are considered fluff, lesser, not serious, and consequently, the literary establishment turns its nose up. Well, as you will hear, the queen of feel-good fiction is not putting up with any of that nonsense, or any other nonsense for that matter. God, I was by myself, holding a full-time job down. I had two toddlers under, you know, four, and I wrote through the night. I was propped up on coffee and Walker's shortbread biscuits. So don't tell me you haven't got the time, because you find the time. Millie joined me from her home in Barnsley, where she's lived her whole life, to talk about being a single mum, life as a sandwich woman, and the benefits-ish of having been kicked around the ring a few times. We also discussed grafting, how writing greetings cards shaped her approach to fiction, the importance of making readers feel seen, and why a comfort zone can be just a cosy prison. We should talk about you. Okay, my love. Right. And, you're... <laughs> and I, know you'll, I know you'll hate that. Well, it depends... <laughs> I, I do. I love talking about the books and things and the story. It's just, you know, sometimes the limelight can be a little bit intense. Like they're, they're putting on a party for my 20th book, you know, uh, not birthday, I wish. But I, I said, I don't I don't want the party thing. I was dreading it because, you know, everybody's standing around. And I second guess people at a lot yeah. thinking, oh, God, they'll be thinking, how long, how long, how long have we got to stay here before we get the tube back? So I said, I, I don't want that. I want a dinner. It will be smaller, but my nearest and dearest can sit around a table. And then it, it feels as if I'm, you know, sharing, sharing the limelight, you know. I don't know about you. I hate, I mean, I like parties, but I hate my parties. Cause yes. The, first of all, you've got that thing where you don't know if people will come. Yes. Like you just say, you've got people waiting for like, what time do you reckon the speeches will be? And then I yeah. can leave. You yes. Know. Yeah. So I thought if I kind of anchor them to a table with some food, they won't leave me. <laughs> and they'll go away fed and watered and think, oh, that was all right. You know, rather than yeah. God, that's over, you know. So. Oh, God, so 20 novels. Yeah. Tell me how it started. 
Right, okay. I can't remember a time before I didn't want to write books. My grandparents were great readers. My parents weren't, but my grandparents were, so they fed me Enid Blyton books. And I just fell into books. I was an only child. I was not bothered about playing out, but books were my big thing. And I I think really from an early age, I, I was always making books when I discovered I had a little Bambi stapler and I'd make books. So the book thing was always in my life. You know, when I, I kind of wanted to write books that made other people feel the way I felt reading their books, you know, so books were always my big thing. But, you know, I came from a very traditional working class background it was always expected, I think I'd, I'd get a proper job. I never thought for one minute that I would become a novelist because that was a job for people who lived down in London who had connections, etc. There was half of me that was sort of like, well, put that dream to bed, girl. And the other half was like, oh, but this is all you want to do. So I kind of struggled with that for a long time. You know, I, I was an academic at school, so I went down the um, route of doing O-levels and A-levels. And I had a friend at school called Gillian who reaped any literary awards without even having to try for them but I was better oh, than how her. annoying oh I know but she's lovely you know and I'm still friends with her and she's going am I included in your speech again yes Gillian you are she became a dress designer I mean she she just had so many talents she had to pick one and she she picked dresses she was brilliant at everything she did I went to uni and did drama I did that thing where you go and study something you're good at but not necessarily the one thing that you really wanted to do I should have done literature but in a round about way it led me to where I am. I think I kind of projected myself from being a student to picking up my Oscar and not thought about anything in between. Yeah, yeah. To cut long story short, because it is a long story. Oh, no, don't. Long stories are fine. Oh, okay, right. Well, I, uh, a cataclysmic event happened when I was at uni. Boyfriend back home ran off with a woman from Scunthorpe. I thought, I can't possibly go home the long summer holidays seeing with this woman. Mm. Got the copy of the lady, stuck a pin in it, job came up, hotel in Wales, went there, middle of nowhere. What I wasn't prepared for was, because it was so beautiful, a load of film crews were there, took me out on all the film shoots. I I thought, God oh, almighty, right. this is not what I want to do at all. I saw the reality of how bloody boring it is. Oh, so boring. Oh. Just sitting around in the rain yep. waiting for five minutes. On, yep. Yeah. The bacon butties were great. But apart from that, came back to the hotel. One of the actresses who was there made the mistake of saying, how did it go? I, I burst like a dam. All came out about Gillian being better than me at writing and what <laughs> I wanted to write. And the boyfriend and this was, you know, I was like emotionally adrift and also career injury and she was saying well why aren't you trying to be a novelist if this is what you want to do you know all these people here she explained are you know they some of them will fall by the wayside some of them will make it um, but they're all giving it their best shot she kind of changed my mindset it was Shirley Stelfox this you know it was Edna in, in Emmerdale Farm and um, oh right yeah. yeah and she was in personal services with Julie Walters and um, and she changed my life for me uh, so did you feel like it was something that someone like you someone from like an ordinary background like I'm from and you're from yes. couldn't no. do it no absolutely not those jobs weren't for me I mean my grandfather mm. was a very talented poet and he loved the arts really good at, at drawing and things but what was he supposed to do with that in the 30s it was like yeah. just get down the mines and then come home and draw in a pad which is what he did so I, yeah. I think I've picked up it from him and but with me it was like you know my dad worked in a bank my mum was a dinner lady it was never expected that 
someone like me would just go rogue. So I, as I say, I had this split between me. So for many years, I said, when I, I came out of uni and didn't know what the hell to do with myself, just got a proper job, which was trainee accountancy, the worst job mismatch in history. But I oh, do God. this, I know, I do this job and then I'd come home and start writing and send off my kind of manuscripts, my first three chapters to an agent I picked up in the Writers and Artists Yearbook. I was doomed to failure, to be honest, because the books I write, I've had to be kicked around the ring a few times and had some life experience to be able to to write, you know, it's mm, all things yeah. a season. I had nothing to say. Uh, and this cycle kept going on for years, get a proper job, go home, write, send it off, get rejected, think, right, sod it, I'm not going to do this, it's not for me, and then it would all start up again. I had two big breaks, two kind of things that nudged me onto the path, as it were. The first one was, at the time of me writing, everybody was writing about London. It was very London-centric, mm. not chick kind of thing. Yeah. And I wasn't, because I had no experience of living down south, so I wrote about some no-man's land, because I didn't think anybody would want to hear about the north. I didn't think they were very popular, so I was there was no ground for my books at all. And uh, I was working in a mill and then left the mill to work in a rather swanky place that sold cruises. And I was sacked after I'd sold the um, biggest, most expensive cabin. I was expecting to go into the office and have Mm. a a promotion. And the word she sent to me, because I said, what what have I done? And she said, we think your accent is better suited to the textile industry where you came from. What? So I was... do one. I know. I was, at the time, I was, you know, 20 odd and absolutely devastated. It was like that though but also that thing about accents they didn't like anybody to sound anything other than what they considered proper at that point yeah. whereas now you hear all sorts of accents. Oh you do I mean like Ralph Innison and kind of Sean Dooley are the, the go-to actors for voiceover. but what it did do for me because I thought you know what if I ever do get round to writing this book I'm going to set it in Yorkshire I'm going to stuff it full of Yorkshire and so I kind of <laughs> did I started to write regional stories as it were with you know set them in Yorkshire and and the agent that I was chasing at the time said, you're getting better. My rejection letters were so good. They were almost better than acceptance letters by this time. Oh, how many have you got? Oh, millions. I didn't keep them, but I wish I had because I could have wallpapered my house. Um, the second big thing was I got pregnant at the same time as two of my pals. And we had no experience of kids. We were kind of late 30s. And we went through our pregnancy journeys together. And our conceptions of what pregnancy would be like were nothing actually like they were. And and when we'd all given birth, we are all given birth within six weeks of each other, they came to my house and were sitting in my front room and it was like a thunderbolt. It was, why aren't you writing about this? Why aren't you writing about Barnsley, Yorkshire, friendships, the ordinary things that happen within the parameters mm. of ordinary life? So I started to write this story about three women who all got pregnant at the same time, expecting yet another rejection. Although at the same time, I thought I've got something here. And I had because yeah. the agent I'd been chasing for 15 years, God bless them, turned around and said, this is what I've been waiting for. So I got there, but it was a hell of a long and winding road and a lot of knockbacks. And, you know, right until book, I think, 17 or something, I think my parents were still waiting for me to get a proper job. And I was so glad that before <laughs> oh, my, dad, my dad died, you know, that he actually thought, yep, OK, I'll back off. You're all right. You're doing OK. You know, because I didn't work in the bank. It was terrified. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's about security, isn't it? And from the generation that he was from yeah. just wanted you to be secure but it, it, it is like no matter what you do it's still not proper no 
no, it's not proper. In fact, I've got a job with a desk and someone came, you know, around once a year to, to talk to you about ISIS and you'd got a pension and, you know, it was your birthday. Somebody bought a load of cake. He'd have been happy with that, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, I kind of tried, I think, convinced him. I think right until, you know, he died, there was still this little girl in front of me going, look, Dad, look, here's my book. Here's a newspaper article. Here's this. And and there was still that little girl who wanted to, to show off to me, Dad. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I got through to him in the end. Your books are like, I mean, I just devoured Woman in the Middle yesterday. Oh. Just absolutely, like, loved it. It's so, well, one, somebody, I've been asking people about you, and somebody said about how you make your readers feel seen. And I totally, could totally see that from that book, that kind of Che and her sandwich, you know, stuck in a sea of familial duty, you know, yeah. and how there's always one sibling. Because oh, I was going to ask you if you were that sibling, but you're an only child, aren't I you? I am an only child. So yeah. you do have to do everything. I do, yeah. I do. Yeah. I do, yeah. Because you study other people. And I always wanted a sister or a brother. But as I've grown up and seen the wars that happen in families between siblings, not all, but really vicious ones between some, mm. I, I kind of, I just like one of those little crowds that kind of picks all the things through life and stores them. And uh, I have noticed that in most cases, there always seems to be one sibling who does more than the other. And the other sibling kind of lives away and barks orders at the sibling who's doing yeah. about how it should be done. But I've always been into that kind of the common denominators. I, I was a joke writer for many years, greetings card industry, you know, and that was a great training in observation, in finding mm -hmm. the things that bind us all, the things that we laugh at, the things that make you think, oh, my God, I thought that was only me that did that. And that's been so very useful in my books. It's interesting that because when you're writing a greetings card, you have to like get in that one little sentence, don't you? Yes. The thing that's going to make people go, oh, yeah, that sure really identify yeah, with that. Yeah, because there's a difference difference between writing jokes and writing copy. If you see a really funny joke on a, a greetings card, you'll think, oh, that's really funny. And you'll remember the joke and put the card back. There has to be something that makes you think, oh, that's got our Andy's name on it. It was his birthday last month, but I'm going to keep that card. I'm going to buy that card and send it to him next year. You have to make that connection. And the, the, the hook that makes people pick that card off the shelf and take it to the till. And so you have to find that thing that is going to call to a buyer and say, look at this this is what I do. This is what you do, I bet. Buy me. And uh, and it was a great skill. You know, I was I was taught by someone in the greetings card industry, all these little tricks. It's not rocket science, but there is a little bit of science in it. Do you think like that when you're writing, when you're thinking, coming up with ideas? Yeah, but I think, I think automatically as well. I think I've collected so much in my life that I've, I've got a, a giant scrapbook. I've got a, a kind of... A vision of God <laughs> saying, OK, this bird wants to write books. I'm going to give her a 40 year scrapbook full of stuff to call on. Um, and, and as I say, I've collected so many things. I've had a lot of experience. I've been down up. I've had the crap marriage. I've had the lovely relationship. You know, I've had I've had the whole gamut, the whole extremes of, of experiences that life has to offer. And nothing's ever wasted. So even the, the rubbish times, you know, you can call on, which helps me to write about really lovely men, really kind of coercive, controlling men, lovely friends, deceptive friends. It's great. I mean, at the time, it's hell. But... I'm very grateful for the wisdom that I've accumulated. So you do let your life feed into your characters and your books? Yes, I do. My books are like a brick wall. A lot of it is my experience. A lot of it is stuff I've nicked 
from my friends and, yeah, and newspaper articles and, and the cement is, is imagination. So your first book, which um, I think, in fact, I think I heard you say the editor who bought it, and you've been with your same publisher, haven't yes. you, the whole time, yep. said, oh, she wanted to make an offer on the book about pregnancy in Yorkshire pudding. Yes, she did. That's and <laughs> it was it was great, really, because it was my agent at the time had been sending out the books. And there was a horrific time where you're sitting waiting by the phone. I told all my friends and family, do not ring me through this period, because if anybody did, they would be like, no, get off the phone. The phone was reserved and it was coming up to the Frankfurt Book Fair in October. And the phone rang, and it was the day before the Frankfurt Book Fair. It was my agent on the line, and I knew what she was going to say. Look, it's the Frankfurt Book Fair. Nobody's buying books. I'll continue this story afterwards. So I didn't let her get a word in. I went, I know why you're ringing, Lucy. It's blah, blah, blah. And then I stopped, and she said, well, you're wrong. I've got you a deal. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with myself. I'd wanted this moment my whole life, and now it was in my hands, and I, I couldn't absorb it. And had you split up with your husband at this point, or were you still together? Oh, God, thank God, yes, because... When the money started to come in, he was long gone because I would have, oh, gee. Yes, I had. I had split up from him then. My divorce happened in 2000 and um, my first book deal was 2004. So he was gone and we haven't heard from him apart from one rogue letter since since my divorce. Not even your boys? Your no. boys haven't heard? Nope. Because no. they were we, weren't they, when you They were up? two and three. The last time I saw oh. my ex-husband was on my, on my son's third birthday. My younger son can't remember him. They're not bothered about him. So I, I brought them up as a, as a single mum. And we did all right, you know. We did okay. Because when anybody ever says to me, oh, I'd love to write a book, but I haven't got time, I think, God, I was by myself holding a full-time job down. I had two toddlers under, you know, four, and I wrote through the night. I was propped up on coffee and Walker's shortbread biscuits. So don't tell me you haven't got the time because you find the time. Yeah, you find the time if you want to, don't you? That's the thing. Yeah. My analogy is if you're doing a load of ironing and you think, I can't break off for anything, and Keanu Reeves arrives on the doorstep with a bottle of wine and says, <laughs> have you got half an hour to spare? You'd find the time then, wouldn't you? I know what yeah. I would. <laughs> I would. Good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, if he turns up, give me a ring and I'll be round. You've no chance. I want him to myself. <laughs> <laughs> you write so well about sandwich women and the women who are like drowning in a sea of familial duty and being having all their life flattened out of them. Have you been in that situation yourself lately or in the last kind yeah, of like, 10 years? I mean, I still am in the sandwich generation, as it were. You know, I mean, like as an only child, I, I didn't move away from my mum and dad because they were around the corner. My dad was fading a bit, you know, and uh, my diary was more or less, you know, dad optician, dad eyes, dad heart, dad kidneys, dad blood, mum, mm. jab. I had to kind of squeeze my work around my mum and dad. My mum now lives around the corner, will not move in with us. It would be so much easier if she did. But she she wants to be independent. So we have this massive framework in place that keeps her thinking she's independent. But, you know, this is the stuff of life. And this is, this is why I think I can connect. I'm not some Barbara Cartland creature who is distant from my readers. I'm, I'm the one that they'll queue up behind in, in the chip shop. You know, I, I 
and live the same lives as my readers. And um, and I, I just knew with the sandwich book, you know, Woman in the Middle, that I was going to be sending out a klaxon to people and saying, I know who you are because I know there are loads of women out there like you and I'm going to write a book about you. I like to key into the things that, as I say, connect us. And I knew there were loads out there. And my goodness, the letters that I've had, bonkers, loads and loads of letters from people who want to tell me their stories and their duties. And I think I've got quite light duties compared to what they've got. You must get thousands of reader letters. Do you ever worry about them? Do you feel like they need more help than you could give them support, you know? Oh, God, some of some of the stories are heartbreaking. And I don't think there's many that have slipped through. I answer everyone some longer than others. And, and I've been able to kind of wow. point people in directions and say, I hope you're getting a bit of support. And, you know, if you thought, just let yourself. I think a lot of them just want to hear the words, go and have a cup of tea by yourself one day. It's okay to go and recharge your batteries. I think they need to hear those words. And I think half of them write to me wanting to hear me say, let yourself off the hook, pat yourself on the back for all the good you're doing. Because we we don't do that. We we hone in on all the stuff we miss. I wish I'd done this. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And we don't let ourselves rejoice in the bits that we do get right. And as I say, a lot of people just want to hear the words, go recharge your batteries, go read a book. It's okay for you to have some me time because you need that. You know, batteries don't run on empty. And I, I'm bracing myself for the letters that come with my next book, which is out in a couple of weeks together mm. again, because that is the antithesis of Woman in the Middle. It's about a, a mother who is not loving, a family who were brought up without love. And I just know that that is going to really hit a few nerves and, and I'm going to get some her terrific stories coming in. People do. They want to connect with a, a reader, and which is lovely. So a great compliment to a writer to say, you know, you've saved my life, I think, really. Where did the character, the cold mum, Eleanor, where did she come from? Because so, she's so different to most of your characters. Yes, she is. As I say, I, I kind of claw in information from people. And um, it was a father that triggered this off, actually. It was a, a lovely friend that I used to know in Haworth. And his dad kind of leached off him and used him and not abused him physically, but mentally, yes. And that kind of stuck in my mind. And she came from my imagination, Eleanor. And then I, I couldn't get her right. And then I just happened to be sitting opposite this lady at a, a do. I was doing a speech and we were having some scones before it was a woman's institute thing. I don't know why she started talking about her mum, but her mum used to pimp her out when she was younger to her boyfriends. And she never treated her the same as the brothers. And the, the only time that her mother was nice to her was Christmas Day. And she said, she, I used to get loads of presents, but they'd all disappear on Boxing Day. And the story she told me, I thought, God, blimey, this, this is my key into Eleanor, this woman. And she started to grow from a real seed. But as we know, not every family fits into that lovely template of caring, loving parents. Mm. And um, sadly, you know, as, as you grow up and you read things in the paper about families and you think god thank god i grew up safe and warm and fed and my kids grew up safe and warm and fed it's it's a big achievement when you can get your kids doing that yeah i mean eleanor is a piece of work isn't she she really is on the psychopathic scale you know, my, my ex-husband yeah, is definitely yeah. on that scale. And there's this trail of devastation they leave behind them because they are only interested 
in anything that serves their own needs. So again, I kind of drew from him as well. But in a woman, it's even more scary, isn't it? Even when we see Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, for some reason, Myra Hindley seems the worst of the two monsters for being a woman. Yeah, it's, that's it. It's because our expectations of women are that they're nurturing and all of that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, you know, you write these books that speak to hundreds of thousands of women and you sold two and a half million copies, but you and the other women writing very successful women's commercial fiction are like persistently sidelined by the literary establishment, like called fluff. It's like not serious books, not included in like summer reading lists. What's going on? I have no idea. It's the smoke without fire syndrome, isn't it? Because, you know, we have been, um, someone started this off about we write lesser books and it's there's been a pile on over the years. And I think we got to the stage just around about Christmas. I think there's a conversation I had with, with Philippa Ashley that says, do you think we'll ever be taken seriously? And I think we, we were both in the top 10 at the time. And the Sunday Times didn't mention the fact that these two upstarts, I was number two behind Richard Osman, who was just blocking the top spot, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and the he's Sunday... He's a bloody bed blocker, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> you know, God bless him, because it's not a, a fair playing field, this, you know. And I love the books, you know. So um, it's, you know, good luck to anybody who's, who's out there doing their thing on the book market. But she said to me, was having a, a conversation, she says, look at that. They could have mentioned you and me, but they didn't. They mentioned a, a book about a sausage roll and uh, another one it's called something like the shit workout and it's a workout <laughs> that you have on when you're on the toilet and yet these two commercial fiction massive sales at christmas they didn't mention us at all and it was like a what the heck this is just bonkers none of us were included in the roundups and yet there were so many wonderful christmas books out there kathy bramley's book was you know storming the charts and yet it was like oh let's not mention those books but you know it's got a knock-on effect that it was not just insulting to us writers it's saying you readers shouldn't be looking at those books either we've got women who who haven't got a, a lot of money who, who decide that they want to spend their money on our books and we've got titled women and all these women are discerning readers they buy what they want to read and that is us and why are we lesser writers i don't know is it because you're like your readers are working class, I mean, all sorts of women, but they see them as working class women. So they're books for working class women. So therefore they, they don't count. And it's a way of denigrating a woman's thing. I, I think it is definitely. And it's not just working class women. And it, I, I think we've been shoved in this working class women bracket. And somehow that is less than a middle class man reading a book. Why is it? Why is it make it a, a lesser book for, for that if we are loved and enjoyed by a lot of people? It's 
mad. Uh, but I think we're kind of chipping away at things. I noticed that Together Again was actually put in the autumn roundup in the Times. And it was I like, saw. thank yeah. you, because it just takes a couple of those. And then people will think, OK, well, we'll do it then. And we'll do it. It's true, though, because I mean, when I um, was editor of Cosmopolitan for a while and it was, you know, Cosmo and GH at that point brought in all the money, but were, I mean, were respected by the management, of course, but were looked down on in the industry because they were read by ordinary women. Yes, ordinary women. Uh, and there were a lot of us about. Yeah, know? yeah. Somebody said that to me once at a book signing, you know, she came up to me, lifted her glasses up and went, oh, aren't you ordinary? And I <laughs> took that in the in the um, the vein it was it was meant, as in, I am one of you. Um, I live. It's a compliment. Oh, it's a great compliment. You know, being ordinary and, and being an, an ordinary woman writing about ordinary women has uh, given me a, a, a wonderful career. Extraordinary things happen to us within our ordinary lives, our working exactly, lives. Exactly. Yeah. Stuff happens to people. It's like you mentioned being a successful businesswoman, which you are massively. Um, women never talk about money, do they? Why is that? Uh, Sorry, I, that was a massive generalisation, but you no, know I know I mean. what you mean. On the it's, whole, it's a, it's a, a bit of a, a thing in our industry, you know, that they don't they don't like to talk about it. It might be a bit crass, etc. I burn sometimes to talk about money because you you see a lot of working class, and I'm, I'm wiggling my fingers at the side of working class kind of festivals, etc. I look at the comments that these events garner, and and it almost seems to be like they're inviting working class writers and working class people who want to be writers, etc. Almost as a, well, you're not going to make any money, but we're proud working class people. And I think, why do they not invite people like me along who, you know, I will always, even if I lived in a mansion with this accent, I would always be judged as working class. And I consider myself working class. I live in a working class area, come from a working class family. I've probably got a, a middle class income now. Why do you not invite people like me along who actually have broken the barriers, who are earning a good living and, you know, have have made the market say we need more north in our books but there are <laughs> more people writing about the north now certainly i'm hoping hoping yorkshire becomes the new cornwall around the world but they never invite working class writers maybe again it's there's a snobbery within the snobbery there of mm. contemporary fiction like me who, who are actually earning a few bob and doing all right i love going out there into schools and colleges etc and say you know what when i was younger i thought this job isn't for me blah blah but with a bit of hard work and a bit of luck and um and and just making yourself heard this is entirely possible for you to be a northern writer who's is actually making a few bob and, and making ripples all around the world and and doing okay at what point did you start making enough money to say okay i'm a writer and that's what i do full time well i was quite lucky you see because the greetings card industry was far more lucrative than anybody could have ever imagined that's a whole speech in itself so i was writing greetings card copy and writing a novel at the same time i think i was about eight books in which is quite early for a lot of writers but i was earning enough money on the greetings card to prop up my advance i will tell you now my ad first advance was 25 grand for two books that's 12 and a half grand a year take mm. your agent's fee and your tax 
it, yeah, I couldn't have lived on that. And my publishers grew me. They didn't, alas, throw the million pounds at me. Um, <laughs> they grew me very steadily and very surely. And at the time, I, I was disgruntled thinking, but I want the big money, you know, and it didn't come. But they did a very wise thing and grew me slowly. But I had my day job propping that up. You know, I could write very quickly and earn my brass for the mortgage, etc. in a couple of days with that job and concentrate on my books. So, um, but it's hard for anybody mm. who wants to write and doing a day job. But if you want it hard enough, you just get on and do it. And it has been done by an awful lot of people. But I was very grateful for that slow and steady growth because it meant that I was less likely to be a firework that had a magnificent light and then died after a couple of books. Yeah, and there's a lot of that, and there's such a lot of that. You automatically think, don't you, if you've got an agent and a publisher, that's it, you've cracked it, you'll have them for life. Oh, but it's, it's only. It's not, is it? So you've. I, I think it's every not. time I sign on the dotted line, and thank God I just have signed on the dotted line for another two. Right, I'm okay for another couple of years. But I know after that, that until I sign on the dotted line again, nothing is nothing is sure. Nothing is sure. At what point did you become comfortable about valuing yourself? Because that's one of the things, isn't it, about the way <laughs> women struggle. And yeah, you can say you don't. But, <laughs> but that's one of the reasons, isn't it, that women, a lot of women struggle to talk about money is because they don't see the value in themselves internally. I think it was about halfway through my career. I think actually I got my first industry award and I think that was the point when I thought, blimey, I've got a gong. I've got something here. Nobody's given me because they thought, oh, let's do an eeny, meeny, miny, mo," And like my name came out. And I think round about that time, because I was trying to validate myself for my parents to make sure that they knew I was all right. I think some of it must have seeped through. And of course, readers' letters always help. The fact that your your sales figures and readers' letters writing to you and say, I think you're a great writer, which is lovely. Even now, when I get those letters, I think, you know, a little bit of a figure yeah, there. Yeah. But that's that's what they think. So it must be true in their heads. And it's it's a case, I think, of, of a lot of little bullets going through your skin. There was no defining moment when I thought, oh, actually, you know, I'm not doing bad at this at all. Even now, even my even my speech now, the way I've said that, I'm not bad at this. I'm pulling back, aren't I? Um, mm. But it, it's a lot of a lot of little. Actually, I really like you. You sales, you're selling, and you're still selling. And the next book has sold even more than that one. It's a lot of these little things that batter through. Uh, I remember doing about egos and in um, a university course. And once you've built up your perception of yourself, it's almost got a rock solid case, and it takes an awful lot of battering to change the perception of yourself. Um, and if you are feeling that you aren't valid, that takes a lot of work. And and I, I think with me, certainly, working class people are, as a generalisation, less likely to accept that they can hold their own against people who come from London, who are middle class, who have got brilliant educations. I, and we, we need to break that down because, uh, and I think it is being broken down over over the years, etc. But we have a we have a conception to to feel that we are not as good as as, as other people. It takes a lot of work, but I think I'm doing all right. And and certainly yeah. I've got a lot of 
validation to say you're selling people like your books we're signing you up again because you've earned us some money but I still have that little vestige of imposter syndrome I look at and think 20 books how the hell did all that happen and the the other half is saying but it did happen and you're doing all right it definitely did happen I read that you had said a comfort zone is a prison, a very cosy one, but a prison all the same. Well, it is, isn't that. it? That's that's the that's your whole working class kind of ethic there, isn't it? You know, we're not going to get above our station because we're scared of mm. getting knocked down a bit. And that's where your whole inverted snobbery thing comes in. I was a dreadful inverted snob when I was at uni. I did right, batter down mm. to me. And quite right. It's like we're not we're not going to go out of that. And I'm going to look down on you before you look down on me, mm. which is awful. And there's there's still a lot of that around uh, with the the older set, certainly where I live. It's like, well, we're not going to get above our stations a bit. I'm in a swanky new library, blah, blah, in Barnsley, which which we did have mm. a massive, beautiful library and we needed to shout about it. But but that is it, a comfort zone. If you walk around, you know, you're never you're never testing yourself. You're never seeing what is out there and what you can do. Um, and again, so many years um, I spent thinking I'm not good enough. I will never have that job because that job belongs to, to swanky people down south with connections, etc. Well, it doesn't. It belongs to me now. And I'm not a swanky person down south. You know, I stretched myself. I thought I'm going for this. And if I fall by the wayside, at least I will not get to age 80 and think, oh, I wish I'd given that more of a push. You know, I did it. I broke mm. through. So if I can do it, it's possible. So it is. A comfort zone is definitely a prison. Definitely a bad thing. I just wanted to ask you, what has your experience of menopause been? I don't know where you're where oh, you at. I'm through it. Can you believe? I'm through the other side. I wrote a book that featured the menopause. I think it was about six books back. And my first scene was all these women sitting around with fans. Um, yeah. And uh, and I really wanted to explore this because I thought nobody talks about the menopause. Mm. And my publisher said at the time it wasn't sexy, so I'm not blaming them. They went, can we push that to chapter two? Can we not have that as the opening chapter? Now they would have been doing it the other way around. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I, I knew nothing about it. The, the you know, I, I do a whole stand-up comedy sketch about about the menopause and and how it was the change when you were younger and you it was far too far off to even think about, and then suddenly you are there. I was expecting it to be like my mum had, like melting like a snowman in August. I haven't had one hot sweat at all um what i did have was rage uncontrollable insanity doing really odd things and insomnia like you wouldn't believe they were the three things that i would have my friend who was dripping wet i said i would swap that for insomnia because it was horrific um what i didn't realize as well was i'd gone to the doctors with something quite unrelated and they ran a blood test and said you've got no d vitamin d in your system at all no wonder you loops i was rescuing <laughs> i was rescuing worms i was going like in the rain and seeing all these worms and thinking god i can't let these worms die and my friend went you need to go to see a doctor um yeah. <laughs> anxiety i know you like animals yeah but that's but a stretch this, this was it was, yeah. I was I, there was like a sea of worms uh and um and i and also folic acid i had no folic acid in my system who knew you took that after pregnancy uh i she did a bone scan thank goodness because i think my bones were crumbling um and it would have just gone unreported had i not gone so i don't think i've done the menopause properly when i went for a blood test recently because i thought i had diabetes i hadn't uh it was some other mineral i was uh, mm. you know 
lacking. But um, she said, oh, you're through the other side of the menopause. Your markers are all the way through. But I still have dreadful kind of heart palpitations and, and, and things. And I think, should I go? My friend Kathy Bramley said, oh, Mel, you should have gone and seen about HRT because it's not just about, you know, stopping sweats and things. It's it's about helping all your other organs as well. Yeah, osteoporosis yeah. and heart I, and UTI and stuff. Yeah. I kind of rang the doctor a couple of months ago and said, what would I do? And she said, well, if your last period was over five years ago, I wouldn't even consider putting you through it. So I've kind of done it. I've kind of cobbled my way through it without the knowledge that maybe I should have had all the knowledge that is kind of coming out now and has been coming out for yeah. the last couple of years. And I hope to hope, you know, that it wasn't too bad for me. I've got to admit, you know, it wasn't years and years of suffering like some people have. But I, I just hope I've survived and survived properly. I'm just going to have to keep a, a check on all my minerals and vitamin levels and maybe at some point just go and see if my heart's okay they're quite scary aren't they the palpitations you think i'm, I'm a bit scared about going and you know what yeah, do I, I that can be a symptom it's mm. worth checking that out yeah you're scared aren't you in case they next minute you're kind of hooked up to a, a cardiac monitor right in your will uh, <laughs> and it's not it's never been i've never been a, i've never been a, a person who runs away from medical things but but i i think i'm just a bit nervous about it and uh, I'm, I'm slightly scared that the doctor will just take one look at me and go, you need to get some weight off, you know. And uh, <laughs> Doctors always say that, though. I reckon that's yeah. like the first thing they say regardless. You know, I did try couch to five and buggered my leg up, you know, because... <laughs> but, it's a dangerous thing fitness. <laughs> dangerous. Hey, so I'm now doing sort of couch to kitchen and I'm managing that all right, you know. Get my steps up a bit. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yes. Okay, I'm going to ask you the questions okay. that I always ask at right. the end. Are you, you were talking about not getting hot, and I actually am so hot my glasses oh. just steamed up. Like, <laughs> no, you see, I've not had one, not one of those. Oh. So what's your emotional age? Uh, my emotional age? I think, wait a minute, I'm 58 now, so I reckon I'm tailing behind a little bit because I do have moments where um, I think, oh, God, that was just so puerile. So I'll put myself about 50. I'm tailing behind a little bit, but I am quite a wise old bird. So just maybe about maybe about 52, slightly behind what I should be. Mm-hmm. I let myself down with lapses. I love that you embrace old bird, though, because um, some people really hate it. Because, in fact, I'll jump my questions around. Okay. Um, it's like, who's your old bird role model? And sometimes when I ask that, people are like, oh, that's so offensive. I was like, no, it's oh, a God, compliment. No. no, it is. I mean, I don't I don't think I'm old yet, but an old bird I class myself. I would say Dolly Parton. She is oh, just love her. everybody everybody loves Dolly Parton though, isn't there? She's and she's stayed grounded and she kind of is is very uh, you know, she throws money at kids. And and has her own fun fair and as the the husband in the background that she's and she's still bloody everybody loves Dolly Parton so I would I want to be Dolly Parton. Give us a book recommendation so it can be something that's like really mattered to you your whole life or it can just be something great that you've read lately anything. Yeah well I always I always go for the the same ones I always go either for Persuasion or Jane Eyre so I'm going to be different this time I'm going to go for a book that knocked me sideways I'd heard the hype as you do about books and thought please live up to the hype it was called The Last House on Needless Street by Catriona oh, yes. yeah, well, Ward and Ward yeah I read Love it. I read this book and I'm thinking what the hell is going on here the talking cat and the I'd, and I thought, stick with it. It was not my normal sort of book, you know. 
And then at the end, everything just gathered together in one great, big, beautiful bow. And it wasn't what I was expecting. It wasn't the end I was expecting. I thought it was a masterclass in in writing. Um, I, you know, I thought it was fantastic. I've told everybody about this book. Stick with it. Might not be a normal thing. You might think, what the heck's going on with this big fridge and the cat? I, I thought it was fantastic. Absolutely blew me away. It was my book of last year. Yeah, I absolutely love that. It's, oh. it's completely brilliant. Uh, what advice would you give younger women? Oh, appreciate the age that you're in. You know, we, we do this. We're, we're 30. And think, oh, God, wasn't I lovely when I was 20? And I'm, I'm such a blob <laughs> now. And in your 40s, you think, oh, my God, I was so lovely in my 30s. Why did I think I was a blob? So we never appreciate the time that we're in. I'm the world's worst for that, you know. And we looking back, I think, oh, my God, I was, I was so lovely when I was 20. And I, I thought I was fat. I was a size 12. You know, I hovered between a, a 10 and a 12. So appreciate the, the time you are in you know and be the best version of yourself that you can be in that time and uh you know drink a lot of water as well drink more water than baileys as well yeah. <laughs> it's really crazy isn't it because i was the same i hovered between a 10 and a 12 and i always thought i was fat yeah, yeah. and last week i wrote a uh because I've got a newsletter for the shift podcast and I wrote a piece about spending my life on a diet and put pictures in of all the times I thought I was fat when, of course, I wasn't. Nope. And honestly, hundreds, I've had hundreds of messages. I bet you have. Hundreds <laughs> from people saying. I think I wrote oh God, one. <laughs> too. <laughs> Nuts, isn't I it? I know. It's so sad, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. What's your superpower? Well, it's a dodgy one, this one. I work so well with my back against the wall. What I can do when I run out of time, you know, I've written whole books in three weeks and there I am sort of saying Don't to them, tell your publisher. No, no. Well, I have already on that one. So, but I'm not going to write this one in three weeks. I said to them afterwards, you know, but, um, you know, I've said to my sons before, do not cram, you know, space out your exams and do them properly. I never did that. And I, I swept the board, but I am brilliant. When my back is against the wall, I can perform miracles. So it's a dodgy superpower, is... isn't it? Because you really shouldn't be doing it. But my God, I'm good with my back. It's well worth wall. having. <laughs> <laughs> Um, last one. How many fucks do you give? Too many. Too many fucks, but not as many as I used to give. I second guess everything, you know, and, and worry that I've insulted somebody or said something wrong. But I don't give as many as I use. I'm, I'm a work in progress on giving fucks, but I'm better than I used to be. But still, I, I would like I don't know if I'd like to give no fucks. I think maybe one or two fucks, and I think I'm about, I give three fucks now, so I'd like to be a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Millie. That's oh. been absolutely brilliant. I've loved talking to you. This has been a joy, so I hope it's set us all up on a nice cheery day. Thank you very Thank you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Millie. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 